Let's give it up for the band leading us in worship. Oh, man, it's great to be back. Um, we had a little surgery um, that happened. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and so I just want you guys to know, to give a quick update. If you're a guest, I had a back surgery two weeks ago, uh, exactly 16 days ago. And it was a microdisectomy. They just kind of slice you open about three inches and then cut the bad part out and then sew you back up. And so um, here I am today. So hopefully we're on the road uh, to recovery. And I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Uh, many of you have uh, sent things. You've prayed for me. I appreciate that. There's even a new thing. People are sending uh, gift credits to DoorDash. This is amazing, right? This is amazing. Like now you can like give people, people that will give you and bring you. F anyway, it's just uh, we live in a new world. Um, so... Uh, sometimes back in the old days, uh, you know, people would uh, make a casserole and send it over. And it was like, mm, sometimes, you know. When we moved down here, we realized, like, mm, the gift of cooking has not been passed on. Uh, so anyway, uh, we're going to be starting a new series called The Giver. And uh, that was my spirit animal in the bumper, uh, T.D. Jakes. Uh, probably one of the best preachers I've ever heard. Um, but he was uh, preaching a sermon and kind of inspired this entire series. And, and we're going to be talking about how God is the giver, right? God is the ultimate giver. If you go over and read, I think it's James 2.17, it talks about all good gifts come from the Father, and we'll explore that at a later date. But today we're going to be talking specifically how God has given us incredible gifts. And we're going to be looking at the story of Abraham for the next several weeks, and then we're going to transition into the Christmas season and and all the gifts that God has given us. And it's going to crescendo up um, at the end of the year. And so many things to celebrate. And I wanted us to start thinking about if God is the giver of all things, then an appetizer type of question is, um, how much gratitude do we live with as a result of all that God has given us? And I am convinced, I am convinced that our level of gratitude is insufficient. That many times the reason why we live in this frustrated life is the absence of gratitude. And I, I, will, I will give it to you like this. I just want you to think about on a garden variety normal day, all right? How often do you wake up and your first thought is gratitude, right? I, I, I'm betting if you're like me, uh, you might be wait, or right now, like I wake up and I'm like, can I move today? Um, but but you, you might be foreboding, right? You might be thinking, you're constantly thinking about the things that have gone wrong or things that need to happen. And there's the weight of worry and stress and anxiety. And, and maybe even you've allowed angry or bitter or critical spirit to start taking control and the gratitude is the antidote. It's like a fire extinguisher for all of these bad habits. Think about it for a moment. Like um, whenever it comes to your spouse or your children, you know, do you wake up and are you like, man, look at them. Just look at them. So grateful. You know, whenever you're going through things, you'll be like, you know, just look at them. Just look at them. You know, your kids walk down. Are they grateful? Are they grateful? No, they are not grateful. They are not grateful. It's like, you know, where's the food? Where's the food? You know, come on. And, 
And we start letting little things become big things whenever we live a life that's without gratitude. I want you to think about the things that you fought about this week with whoever it was, spouse, kids, whatever. I guarantee you, all probability, it was not the fact that someone had an affair. It wasn't like someone stole money, robbed a bank. It's like the socks got left on the floor for the one millionth time. And now someone has to die, right? Is it? Am I, am I lying? Like in marriage, the, the most things that you're ever going to fight about are small things. Small things like, like a water torture, right? A little drop of water on your head. It's like, why do they keep doing it? Why? Why? It's almost like, do you ever start to have a, like a paranoia that they're doing it on purpose? Has anybody ever had that thought? Be honest. Like, I know they're doing this. on. Like, you start thinking. Like, if you're a boss, have you ever thought your employees are intentionally sabotaging you? Raise your hands if you've ever thought that. Like, they can't be doing this bad on accident. It has to be. It has to be on purpose. And so these small things, we allow them to fester and grow. And the next thing you know, they take over our attitude. And what is coming against that thing that is dominating us? Gratitude is an antidote for that because I'll, I'll guarantee, let me, let, me, let me show you this. Let me make it self-evident. If your child, like your teenager, who's just fussy, you know, and just... And sometimes, like, you got to be honest. Like, you're not going to do it, but you just want to punch them in the face. Is anybody, like, every parent has had that thought. Like, they just need one good... Anyway... Not gonna do it. I'm not condoning that. I'm just saying, like their attitude. Just need a correction. Anyway, but if they call you and they've been in an accident, right? Oh, mom, I was just in an accident. Your first thought: Are you okay? Are you okay? Is everything okay? Are you hurt? All of those small things instantly fly out the window, right? You're not thinking about. The trash can not getting raw. You're not thinking about a cup. Is it upside down? Is it right side up? Is it the towels folded? I guarantee you, if you got married believing that those things aren't going to matter in your relationship, I guarantee you, you've thought about divorce. I mean, because these things that are small end up being big deals, right? And so all I'm saying is that the instant that you inject some serious level of concern... You throw out all the small things because in that moment you're thinking, I'm so grateful that they're okay, right? I'm so gratitude is able to overcome those things that you are fussing and squabbling about. And gratitude is something that is a choice. And I can explain this to you. It's a crazy thing. I've seen people on their deathbed, right? I've seen people with cancer that are suffering. I mean, suffering an imaginable amount of pain. And they have this attitude that is grateful. They are thankful for what God is doing. We have people in our church right now that have a prognosis that is going, going the wrong way. And yet they are some of the most kind and grateful people coming here serving you every Sunday, even though they are headed toward bad things in their life. And you would never know it. In contrast, I know people that have everything. I know people that make hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, okay? And some of these people that live in this nice house, that have this nice wife, 
that have these children that are all stars, right? And they're at the top of the heap. And yet they're angry. Dominated by greed. Maybe they want more. They can have everything and yet be unsatisfied. How is that possible? Is it not the lack of gratitude? Right? So it's not dependent upon your circumstance, whether or not you can have gratitude. It's dependent on your choice. Do you look at your life as God has blessed you more than you deserve? Because I guarantee if you woke up this morning saying, thank you, God, for giving me another day, despite any struggles and circumstances that you're in, thank you, God, that you are always here for me. It will change the direction of your day by just starting with gratitude. Let's just have a homework assignment this week, okay? Your homework assignment this week is to share a thought of gratitude with someone in your house, or if you want to go social media, post something on social media, something that you are grateful for. And I guarantee you, mark my words, come back next week, tell me it didn't make a difference in your life. So we're going to get into this story of Abraham. Abraham was out in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. You say, where is Ur of the Chaldees? We don't really know, but it's in the middle of nowhere, okay? And all of us can relate to being in the middle of nowhere at somewhere in our life, right? And so he was in the middle of nowhere, and God's going to come to him. And when he comes to him, God always has something to give when he comes to you. And when you think about your life, I promise you that God was looking for you before you were looking for him. And when he found you, he had something to offer you that you could not obtain on your own. So as we see this story starts in Genesis chapter 11, we are introduced for the first time to Abram, who will become Abraham. I'm going to call him Abraham today. God changes his name. It has some prophetic meaning, but for our purposes, he's Abraham. And it says that Abram and Nahor, his brother, were both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and you'll see her name has changed as well. Um, and we're going to call her Sarah, even though in the Hebrew, if you want to be sorry, uh, but we're not going to say sorry. She was not sorry. She was Sarah. Anyway, verse 30, it says, now Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. So the, the introduction of Sarah, like, you know, we don't have any backstory. We don't know anything. It's like, introduction, this is Sarah. She's unable to conceive. And I'm like, man, that's a tough introduction, wouldn't you say? How would you like to be like, this is uh, Johnny. This is big nose Johnny, you know? Uh, <laughs> how would you like to be introduced by your malady, right? You know, this, anyway, I, I almost went to a place and I'm not going to. Anyway, um, so there was an unsolvable problem, right? Sarah could not solve this problem on her own. And she, she met God with an unsolvable problem. As a matter of fact, you would even, if you kind of deconstructed this, she did not know at some point in her life that she was barren. She didn't know that. She probably got married, in fact, not knowing that she was unable to conceive. And then found out through the process of trial and error that she was unable and had a condition that was unsolvable. As a matter of fact, in even modern-day medicine, it is, for some women, it's a high percentage, um, relatively speaking, for this modern medicine age. You know, this situation of barrenness is, is oftentimes unsolvable. And, and you, you think, 
she had this problem before she ever met God. And I started thinking about that there's some, some great parallelism, right? Do you think that we had an unsolvable problem before we met God? Does anybody think that you had an un, unsolvable? Think about it like her problem was with producing something, right? She was unable to produce the thing that she wanted to produce. And I started marrying that up inside my mind and I started thinking, do you have any areas of your life where you'd like to produce something different than what you're producing? Does anybody have, have any, like, does anybody, would you like to produce more patience than you have? Does anybody have that problem? Is anybody easily angered? Would, do you ever say to yourself, like, man, I really need to get a hold of this, right? Like, you find yourself wanting to get out of your car whenever someone honks at you and, like, just pummel them. You know, that's not normal, you know? Do you ever have some thought of, like, raging on people? Or do, if we're honest, do you rage? on people, and you, like, you, you say to yourself, like, oh, you shouldn't be doing this, but you find yourself unable to stop? Is you, does anybody have this problem? Think about that. There's so many areas of our life, and if I ask you to think about the person that you want to be, and then the person that you are, if we made a column, here's the things I'd like to produce, but here is what I'm producing. Do you think that they would be at odds? Do you think there would be a difference between those two things? So then you have an unsolvable problem. As a matter of fact, if we stretch the thing that you are unable to produce in your life right now, I bet that this has been a thing that you've been unable to conquer for many years in your life. What if it's being, you know, too shy? What if it's being too extroverted, saying too much? You can lose both ways, right? And so how do I control myself? That's the thing. How do I control myself? How do I produce these things that, are, that, I, that I'm unable to produce on my own? So for this unsolvable problem, we have to find a God that is bigger than the unsolvable problem, right? And so here God is introducing himself at a time where she was in a position that she couldn't change something. And all of us, before we met God, we had an unsolvable problem called sin. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says the wages of sin is death. It says that when every man is tempted, he's drawn away by his own lust. And lust is just wanting things outside of God's will. And then that lust conceives and it brings forth sin. And if undealt with, that sin matures and it brings forth death. And we can think of so many things that have died in our lives as a result of unchecked sin. And so God said, because you have an unsolvable problem in your sin, then I will send my son to save you. God meets Abraham in a place that he had an unsolvable problem and instantly starts working to solve the problem that she has. When you think about it, it says, this is Sarah who was barren and unable to conceive. That's what she was known for before she met God. I wanted us to start thinking about that. What were you known for before you met God? Think about that for a moment. Now, the great thing about being Gen X and older is that our sins and mistakes that we made are not recorded live for the world to see. Gen Xers, say amen, right? Like, there's no record. Unfortunately for all the other people that live for the rest of time, all of your mistakes are captured and posted. So like, here is when I was stupid. Anyway, and so, so you think about that, and I think all of us probably, you know, have some things that we were known for. You know, I could tell you this, your pastor, 
growing up. I did not grow up in church. No God, no church. And, you know, it wasn't a pure household. And I'm going to tell you, this is a hard stretch for most of you to know this, but I was mischievous. Did you guys know that? Can you, can you even picture your pastor being mischievous? I'm only mildly recovered since I met Jesus. But I just have this thing inside of me. I just like to push and prod. You know, I just, I just do. And I was the parent's worst nightmare because I would just tempt other children into doing the things, right? It's like, this is how you tell your teacher she's number one. Just do this, okay? And just let that sink in later. And so I would do all these things. And I remember I was in physics class in high school, and we had this... It, in today's culture, we call it a shock box, but at, back then it was like an old telephone that had this crank. And when you cranked it, it had two ends that would produce electricity. And I was playing with that, you know, and we had these little, uh, it was wrapped in so you could hold on to it. And you would see like how much, how much could you take if someone shocked you, you know, and it was kind of like, you know, guys being stupid guys, you know, oh, I can take it. Anyway, and I thought, I thought to myself one day as my friend was sitting in front of me, and I was like, what if I just touched both of those, those prods to the back of his neck? You know, like both sides of his central nervous system? I was like, what do you think would happen? And dude cranked it up. Boom. Dude, he went down. He was sitting in his desk. I mean, fell out on the eye thoughts. I had that instant moment. And I've had this moment several times in my life. What have I done? What a, like, I, he, he, was, he was tears in his eyes. And it was, you know, in my mind, I thought this is just a simple little prank that has gone too far. Does anybody else have this spirit in them? It's like, I always think it's going to be funny in this. Like, ooh. And so anyway, I was mischievous. I would say that everyone that knew me knew that I was mischievous, okay? I remember I was playing tennis. Every time I would serve and I would miss a serve, these words would come flying out of my mouth, all right? And this was post-becoming Christian. I might have even been a preacher at this juncture, I'm not sure, but I was raised in a household where you just said things and all the words, and I would miss a serve, and it was like, and like, I remember this guy that I was practicing with, he was like, aren't you, aren't you a Christian now? And I was like, And he was a Buddhist. <laughs> Conviction. And I thought, man, is that what I'm known for? Like, right? Am I representing the God that found me? Shouldn't there be a difference between what you were known for before you met God and what you're known for now? Because as we go through the story, Sarah's not going to be known at the end of the story as the woman that was unable to bear a child, right? A miracle is on its way. And God, I'm sure, when he met you and saved your soul, right? The God says that when his spirit resides in us, it now produces something that is pushing against that carnal nature inside of you that wants to do the wrong things. And if you are pursuing after Christ, we should see a difference. We should see a progression. We should see some areas that you've conquered. 
And so I hope that you would just take that litmus test this morning. What would you be known for now? Would you be known for representing Jesus in your marriage, in your parenting, in your lifestyle, in your business choices? Or would they be able to distinguish a difference in you and anyone else in the world? As we move on, we're going to see in the next passage, God has this conversation with Abraham. And I want you to see how quickly God is trying to produce a a solution to the problem that was unsolvable. It says in verse, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. So we see right out of the gates, he's met God, he's believed in God, and our relationship with God is free. The relation, the love of God is free, unconditional. We're going to see that the blessing of God is conditional. It's conditional on your obedience. So you can't just say, I'm saved, therefore I'm blessed. No, saved living in sin is not going to be blessed. Saved and being obedient is going to be blessed. And we see a principle right out of the gate. There's something to leave. He said there was a, basically three levels of leaving. It was your, your, your people, the country, the land that you live in, the, the people, and then your, even your father's house, you're going to have to move away. And I thought we could kind of parse this out and think about there's things that we need to leave that we are familiar with. So his country, where he grew up, that's what he was familiar with. And I think that in our Christianity today, it's become, ah, if I'm just being honest, we're, we're a little too comfortable. And a lot of us, we're comfortable in the things that we're familiar with, right? If I, for some of you, you are ruled by rules. Like if I told you we're going to change your schedule this week, you would freak out. If I said, oh, instead of getting up at 7, we're going to change it to 6.30. No, I need, a, oh, okay, we're going to change it to 7.30. No, I got to get up. There's all, like people freak out when you change things, right? And it's, it's kind of a thing like, oh, this is what I'm accustomed to. This is what I'm familiar with. I don't want to leave what I'm familiar with. Can you imagine how many blessings you're missing out on? Because you're ruled by the things that you're familiar with and you don't want to be uncomfortable. You don't want to be inconvenienced. I know people that they'll write a check like, hey, Tim, tell me where to send my money, but don't ask for my time. I know people that'll say, hey, Pastor Tim, I'll tithe my time, but they won't give any of their money, right? It's like there's all these different areas and we probably all have some place where we will not be inconvenienced. We are unwilling to let go of the thing that we're familiar with. I just want you to know that that the blessing, the God life, there's going to be some things that you can't take with you. Think about that. Some of your old habits. Let's Let's say that when we're talking about leaving, that it could be physically, but it could be spiritually. There might be some things I need to leave if I'm going to follow after God. Not only things I'm familiar with, he said, there's going to be some things that you're family with that you're going to have to leave in order to follow after me, right? He said, you're going to have to leave this group. Now, I want you to think about this to, to really get your mind rolling here. Abraham, at this point in the conversation, is 75 years old. You understand what I'm saying? Just out of, just out of sheer curiosity, do we have anyone that's over 75 in this room by show of hands? Anybody? 
Okay, no one. So I want you to think about this. You, Abraham is wealthy, okay? He's, he's living in Frisco, Texas, in Ur of the Chaldees, right? He's got the nice house. He's got the pool. He's got the things. He's an incredibly successful businessman. Everything that you could want, he's carved out his life, and he's done it for 75 years. And now God comes and meets him at 75 years old and is like, hey, bro, for the rest of your life, we're going to be nomads. And I want you to imagine him going home and telling his wife, who was 10 years younger than him, that we are going to be traveling on camels and horses, whatever, donkeys, for the rest of our life. At 75, imagine next Sunday. We, we're going to make this happen. I would love to be. Like, imagine a 75-year-old dude rolling up on a camel in Genesis Metro Park. I just want you to just picture it in your mind. You'd be like, good for him, right? Like he could still ride a camel, 75. Look at that guy. He's got it, right? That, it's crazy to think that you would leave at this later stage of your life to go on this incredible journey that's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be all this travel. It's going to be all this danger. And you're doing it at 75 years old. Isn't it amazing? It doesn't matter how old you get. God still has something for you to do. And you're never going to get there if you're unwilling to leave the things that you're familiar with, the things that you're family with. That means that relationships, if I'm going to move forward in my faith, there are some relationships that I'm going to have to let go of. There's some friends that you have, let's be honest, they are not pulling you in the right direction. How can you walk in the light and have fellowship with darkness? Every time you're around those people, they start leading you into bad places. They start, they start tempting you into conversations or even behavior that you wouldn't do otherwise. And I'm going to take your argument away from you before you even make it. And you say, oh, well, Tim, how can I be Jesus to them if, if I walk away from them? Don't they need Jesus too? Listen, you are not being Billy Graham in your relationship when you're out there. Like, they aren't on the verge of converting when you're out there getting hammered or at the club, whatever it is. You, no, no, no. They are the gravitational pull in the relationship, and they are moving you away from Christ. So you have to let go. Not everyone can come with you on the journey to where God has. I learned that at a very young age. As I started moving towards Christ in a high school that was not a good high school, very much gangster's paradise type of high school, um, I did not know more than three people that loved Jesus in my high school. And the mischievous Tim was fun, football player, all that stuff, and now all of a sudden trying to follow Jesus, well, there's a there's a contrast, right? Because if I'm not going to do those things, all of a sudden it's like, well, come on, Tim, we know that you, you want to have fun. You want to do it. And I found that that same problem, that paradox that happens in high school, it only happens to a greater degree in adult life. Oh, come on, let's go. Oh, come on, you can't. Oh, come on. You're on the verge of that business decision. And all you got to do is shade, shade the line a little bit. And if you say you can't do that, the person walks away from the deal. Mm. 
It only gets more complex as you get older. Are you willing to leave some of these relationships that keep pulling you away from God? Maybe then you grow. You get stronger. The lie becomes greater. Then you can reintroduce yourself into the relationship. But if they are affecting your relationship, your marriage, if they're affecting your walk with God, if they're a net negative, you need to move away from that relationship. I'm going to tell you right now, as the pastor of Genesis Metro Church, I'm not going to run with people that are walking. I'm not going to run with people that are crawling. There's a destination that we're trying to get to. And if I allow you to stop my forward momentum, there's someone that needs to be saved as a result of what I'm doing, what this church is doing. And if every time someone stops or goes a different direction, we're like, shut the machine down. We can't have church this week because the same guy that keeps walking in darkness left again. Let's stop. Let's, let's, let's cater to this person over here who has the truth but denies the power thereof rather than marching forward, running forward to the next soul that needs to be saved. You see, you can't compromise the integrity of your forward momentum for the sake of someone who is willfully choosing to go in the opposite direction. No, the soul that needs to be saved is worth me leaving that relationship. I won't let you stop the call of God on my life. That's the commitment. That's the commitment we all must make. Whenever you're following after Christ, you got to say, if I have to let everything go to have Jesus, it's worth it. So whenever we start thinking about things we have to leave, it's complex, very complex. Because he was talking about you got to leave your father's household. And how many people have suffered? I mean suffered. Because of the extended fam familial structure, right? Because when you introduce in-laws, outlaws, uncles, all that stuff, it always gets more complex. And, and the reason why it's difficult is because you're adding variables. When you add variables to any equation, you make it more complex. The more complex it is, it will always necessitate that it becomes difficult. So in order for it not to become too difficult for you to manage, you have to simplify. And how do we leave then? How do we leave and cleave as we're supposed to do in marriage? You have to have a DTR. Every married person needs to have a DTR. Does everybody know what DTR is? You got to define the relationship. I encourage every young couple that I premarital counsel, sometimes not young, sometimes older people getting married. And I'm talking to them, and I'm like, you have to have the conversation with your parents where the parameters are decided. We love you, mom and dad. We love you so much. But, you know, as our family grows, we're going to take on some of our own traditions. And that means that we might take our family trip, and that might be different than the traditional family trip. We just hope that you'll respect that we're going to honor this relationship, and we want this relationship to take center stage, and that biblically all other relationships are to come second place. It's not that I don't want to honor my mother and father. I don't want to dishonor my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, but they don't come first. And the problem starts to set in when we people please. How many people in here are people pleasers? Raise your hands. Like, Mom and dad are wanting you to come at this time. But your spouse, you've already talked about it, and you've decided it's going to be at this time. And those times aren't the same time. So now you are stuck because how can you win? Because you're going to have to displease someone. So you know what we often do in marriage? We say, well, they'll get over it because we love each other. 
So you take advantage of their love and you start putting other people's wants and desires and needs ahead of your spouse. Did you sign up for second at the altar? Did anybody sign up for second? Were you marrying your mama at the altar? This is the point where you say amen. Mm -mm. Hey, listen, the marriage comes first. Above the children even, the marriage comes first. Someday those children will be gone. And if you made your marriage revolve around them, you'll be sitting there staring at a stranger. The marriage comes first, always. So we have to leave some relationships in order to chase after the calling of God. We'll get to the last part. And we're going to call this, what happens when an unsolvable problem meets an unstoppable promise? Sarah meets God with an unsolvable problem. And the first conversation that God has with Abraham is a solution to her unsolvable problem. It's an unstoppable promise that he gives to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation. How can he make Abraham into a great nation without a son? He has to have a son. We'll later see that he expands upon this promise. He says, your generations will be like the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Not just a son, but generations, a whole country, a whole nation, nations are going to rise out of Abraham. Instantly, what Sarah was known for when she met God was that she was barren and unable to produce. And God's first promise is we're going to take care of that problem. Isn't it great that we have a God that has a promise for every problem that we have? And so it says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Man, Abraham, I'm going to pour out my blessing. God doesn't come wanting you to give something first. God is the initiator always in the giving. Man, I hope that you would learn. If you want to be God, like God, in your relationships, are you going to be the initiator or are you going to wait for someone else? I'm going to tell you, Jesus didn't wait on you. Jesus took the initiative. So therefore, if we want to be Jesus-like in our relationships, you can't hold people hostage to waiting on them. Well, they didn't say they love me. Well, they didn't invite me. Well, they didn't. Have you invited his own? It's crazy how people are. It's like, well, no one ever invites me to anything. Do you ever invite people? Like, well, I mean, uh, no, come on. You need to be what you want, right? If you want someone to be more patient with you, do you give patience? If you want to be, someone to be more kind with you, do you give kindness? If you want more love given to you, do you give more? I mean, see, you sow into relationships what you want to be reciprocated. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. What happens when an unsolvable problem meets an unstoppable promise? God says, I will take care of the inside. So if we imagine, I heard this recently, um, like, imagine your life is like a cup, right? And when you allow God to pour into you, right, that's how we fill the cup up, right? It's like filling it up. He's like pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And then when the cup overflows, right, it says that I have blessed you. Now you are to bless. I've blessed you to be a blessing. And this is what I fear. This is what I fear. 
I think that no one sitting in this room, if you've accepted Jesus, I believe God has blessed you and me beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. Is that true? Say amen. amen. Yeah, that's true. That's 100% true. So your cup, right? If you're sitting here this morning, you're walking with Jesus. Man, he has poured into that cup, and it's right at the point. It's getting ready to overflow. And this is what I think we do. We pick it up, and we're like, oh, thank you, God. Oh, that is good. You have indeed blessed me. Is that Folgers? What is that? Mm. Is that Starbucks? I don't know. And I think we are consuming the blessing that God has poured out. I mean, we live in a land of we are top 10% in Frisco. I mean, compared to the world, we are in the top 1%. I mean, go to a, we are blessed beyond what we could possibly fathom or imagine or have ever deserved. And it wasn't because you were awesome. You were a sinner far from God, and he saved you anyway. So if we have been blessed like this, what is the goal of the blessing? To bless others. So ask yourself, how did you bless people this week? How did you bless your spouse? Did you wake up in the morning and like look at them and like, baby, you just look great today. I just love you. I just like watching you sleep. Just watching you breathe over there. My son Titus is dating this girl right now, and she lives in Iowa, and um, they FaceTime each other, and last night I walked in, and they were watching a movie at the same time, two different places, while FaceTiming. I think get it done, right? I mean... We're having a date over FaceTime watching them. That is technology at its best, right? And I started thinking like, that's, that's young love. That's the way we should be, right? Shouldn't we want to just be around the person that we've committed to? Shouldn't we want that? Shouldn't we want to bless the people that we love? How are you blessing your children? Are you blessing them with the truth? Whenever they're struggling, what words are you speaking into them? Are you speaking into them humanistic logic? Like you, you can be your best version of you, right? Or like you can do it. Oh, you better, you deserve it. I mean, you deserve it. You deserve a trophy. No matter what effort you give, right? It's terrible. Why not bless them with the truth? They got in trouble for lying. You know why we shouldn't lie? Not because just you got caught, but because lying's wrong. Because God's not happy when we lie. They got caught being selfish. They got caught being mean. God's not happy when we do those things. Take it a step further. Now bless them. You know what we can do, though? We can ask for forgiveness. You know what we can do? We can become a truth teller. We can become generous instead of selfish. We can become selfless. Your life would be so much better when we do it God's way. See, you would bless them with the truth, and that truth would change them, it would transform them. As a matter of fact, you don't even have the power to change your child. Only the Word of God has the power to transform them. So I'm just asking you, what are you, how are you blessing? When you go to work, when's the last time you blessed somebody at work? Now, I know some of them are hard, <laughs> hard to bless. But when's the last time you were just like, you know what, hey, let me buy lunch. Some of you are such penny pinchers. It's ridiculous. Like you, you Venmo request a $4 cup of coffee. Like, 
Come on. When's the last time you were generous? I mean generous. If you can't think of times when you have been blessed beyond what you ever deserve, sitting in that house that you sit in, and it's just for you, driving that car, that's amazing. Remember when you were 16 and the hoopty you were driving? You never dreamed you'd be driving the car that you're driving, and that's yours? That's just for you to consume? We got people that bring eight, 10 teenagers every week, and you're bringing your one. I bet if you told your kid, invite your friends and we'll pick them all up or have them over after school for pizza, we'd double our size of Fuse Ministry just by that invitation alone. You see what I'm saying? Don't consume it for yourself. We have an eternity to change. And if Genesis Metro is going to accomplish God's will for it, it's going to take all of us leaving some things, some things we're familiar with, some relationships that we don't need, that are baggage, that are holding us back. And I think if we'd all commit to being grateful, man, it would change some lives going in to 2023. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us, God. Help us this morning to be grateful. God, that maybe even right now in the quietness of this moment, everyone could just start lifting up some things that they are grateful for. That you begin to bless God's name and say, God, thank you. Thank you. Even for the challenges, thank you. Thank you, God, that even though I was raised in brokenness, you're the father that never, ever has let me down. That though people have abandoned me, God, your word says you will never leave us nor forsake us. Even though I was not loved the way that I should have been loved as a child, I am loved as a child of the king now. That God, for the family that I didn't have, you've given me a community of believers that is more faithful to blessing me and telling me the truth that can transform my life than my other family was ever to me. God, thank you for that. God, thank you for the job that you've given me that provides sustenance and blessings for my family. God, thank you for the house that I have. God, thank you for the blessings that you've poured out on me financially. I promise you, if you would just say five things that you're grateful for, how you worshiped at the beginning of this service will be different than how you'll worship at the end. Are you guys ready? Would you stand and worship with us?